Thanks so much for joining us for the latest episode of Taking the Complex and Making It Simple, the Merlin Wealth Management Educational Podcast. Join us as Michael Merlin, founder of Merlin Wealth Management, and various friends and experts break down complicated financial topics to make them easy to understand. If you'd like more information about Merlin Wealth Management, please visit our website at rcm.rocco.com forward slash Merlin. And with that, here's founder of Merlin Wealth Management and private wealth advisor at Rockefeller Capital Management, Michael Merlin. Thanks, Tom, and uh, thanks to everyone for tuning in to uh, Taking the Complex and Making It Simple, the Merlin Wealth Management Educational Podcast. Uh, today, we are uh, recording on uh, uh, right at the end of the quarter on March the 29th, so uh, we hope this will be uh, in front of you uh, around uh, the, the beginning of April and a great time to be talking about the market. Uh, we've had a, a quick but, but very eventful first quarter. Uh, there were a lot of expectations, I think, in, in this first quarter that some have been met and others have not been. There have been some surprises and um, some new developments that I think are incredibly important to talk about uh, today. And so uh, with that in mind, I, I am uh, very happy to be joined by the Merlin Wealth Management Asset Management Team, uh, Adam Compton, uh, Grady O'Gara, John Wagner, and David North. Um, we're going to have a, a nice uh, discussion about um, what the market's been doing, uh, the the economy, and uh, you know some of the new things going on. Obviously, the direction of interest rates. Um, we'll talk a little bit about the liquidity uh, challenges and some of the banking issues that we've seen, uh, and uh, we'll hopefully uh, give some insight as to where we see things going over the course of the remainder of the year. So, uh, thanks you guys for being here. Appreciate it. Thanks, Michael. Thanks, Michael. Um, so, Adam, I'll, I'll kick it off with you. As, as most of you know, Adam is the head of our asset management business, has uh, many, many years in the industry, um, and also uh, worked as a bank regulator in the state of Florida. So, um, we'll definitely uh, uh, bend his ear about some of what's going on in the banking sector later on in the in the podcast. But let's start out with this. You know, I know I wrote in my in our quarterly client piece at the beginning of the year that we felt that the market would probably retest the 2022 lows somewhere um, during the course of 23. Um, clearly, that has not happened yet. Uh, the market has eked out, or at least as of the, this recording, it's eked out a small gain. Um, so uh, do we do we still think that that test of the lows is in the cards? And um, if so, how do, we, how do you think that's going to play out? Thanks, Michael. Yeah, the, the equity markets have been pretty resilient this year into still declining earnings expectations. We've watched the expectations come down since last summer, uh, probably increasing recession risks, uh, especially now with the bank sector seeing some stress. Um, sticky inflation, it's still staying much higher than the Fed would want to see, and rising long-term interest rates, right? So a lot of factors that you think might bring down the equity markets uh, haven't really affected it as much as we would have guessed this year. Um, so in our mind, though, the valuations, particularly with the earnings expectations coming down, uh, seem to leave not much room for error uh, against our models. So we do see probable scenarios where we could retest lows. And so we've stayed pretty conservatively positioned with higher than normal cash levels across our strategies uh, on the equity side. Um, but if you look at where the performance has been, and we think this is really interesting, um, it has been concentrated in the higher quality names with little or no leverage, strong cash flows, good secular tailwinds, all factors that we tend to look at when we're building out and maintaining the portfolios here at, at MWM Asset Management. 
Um, as a result, we've actually performed pretty well this year, even with the excess cash, right? Because it's, you know, if you have cash on, on your balance sheet and, and, you know, the markets are going up, you know, that creates some drag, but we've actually done pretty good. So, yeah, just, just to put some more specific numbers around that, our dynamic core portfolio uh, is up 7% uh, quarter to date. Um, and that's versus the S&P up about 4.8%, right? So pretty strong numbers there, even with about 10% cash sitting in that portfolio. The sustainable income portfolio is up about 1.6%, and that's versus the its benchmark Russell 1000 value actually down uh, a little bit over 1% so far this quarter. Uh, and last but not least, um, our new era portfolio um, is actually up a bit over 11% so far this quarter. Um, which is actually still ahead the, of the Russell 1000 growth, although pretty close. So we're pretty happy with the performance numbers there. Um, the quality factors, you know, that I talked about a bit earlier that we tend, we focus on do tend to outperform going into recession, you know, as the markets brace for weaker economic conditions. Uh, this has been something that we've expected to happen um, as the odds of a recession increase. Um, and so this might not result in really strong absolute numbers, but we should be doing better than um, more cyclical and levered kinds of sectors and companies, particularly after a year like 2022, where values showed like massive outperformance versus quality and growth factors. So net net, we do see elevated risks, but we think we're at a point in the cycle where quality companies should start to show better performance. You know, and there's never any guarantees that things follow historical patterns. Um, but we do believe this should favor our focus on owning what we view as very strong businesses with good long-term prospects, regardless of the ebbs and flows of equity markets. Thanks, Adam. You know, I, I think one thing that's important to, to highlight too is, is, is the performance of our strategies has been achieved, as you mentioned, still in a pretty defensive posture. We're holding additional cash or excess cash, and um, we've still got some hedges in the portfolio. Um, so I guess my next question would really be a follow-up to you, which is um, with interest rates still going higher, obviously it is unprecedented that the Fed raised rates into what looks like a liquidity slash banking crisis. Um, according to our friends at ISI, that's never happened before. So we still have rising rates. We have a fracture in banking, um, which could, as you said, curtail some liquidity. I'm assuming we believe that, that our defensive posture is still warranted, and if so, you know, what's the market telling us to do with new cash at this stage? Um, great question, Michael. You know, you know, to to paraphrase Ross Perot, the giant sucking sound we've heard um, hasn't been jobs this time, uh, which remained pretty resilient so far. But you're seeing the receding liquidity driven by the Fed's push to conquer inflation, right? So, and we are feeling this through higher interest rates. That's pushing up corporate and consumer borrowing costs. Uh, it is decreasing risk appetites, um, and with the more recent phenomenon of the Fed selling securities from its what had been a nine trillion dollar balance sheet, unprecedented levels, unprecedented levels there, uh, which is that's called quantitative tightening for the technical people out there. That absorbs liquidity out of the economy, so it's already been apparent. All these things are seeing causing things like weaker capital markets activity because in your risk aversion. Um, and the notable thing that's been affecting the banking industry has been record declines in banking system deposits. So, you know, well down off their peak last April 2022, the biggest decline on record for the industry. Um, so, and, you know, and that could continue for a while if the Fed continues to absorb liquidity out of the system. So 
Um, you know, as you noted, the recent stress in the banking industry might further slow the economy just through tightening lending standards, right? So if it's harder to fund your balance sheet as a bank, you're probably going to make it harder to lend money on the other end uh, so you can keep things in balance. So we keep an eye on the Fed's bank lending officer surveys. Uh, data there already trended towards tightening even before the recent banking sector issues. So definitely something to keep an eye on. Um, you know, in the context of all that, for shorter term horizons, we still would tend to be conservative with allocations towards, you know, high grade corporate bonds, munis and treasuries over on the fixed income side. Um, for longer term mo money and equities, you know, we would allocate probably some out of the more highly levered and cyclical names into clean balance sheets and uh, with a bit more of a growth and good secular tailwinds behind them. Um, and we would express that internally in our strategies through lower allocations into the sustainable income portfolios, which are more mature companies, more cyclical names, and tend to have a bit more um, leverage, you know, and that's all pretty much by design. Um, and then we probably would have more money in our dynamic core companies, which tend to have, you know, really strong business positions and balance sheets and a touch more into the new era exposure. So, you know, this is all obviously pretty dependent on where inflation ends up at the end of the day. The Fed's got to conquer that. Um, and that would allow, you know, rates to finally go down on the long end, which they've already started to come down some, um, kind of regardless of what's the Fed's doing on the short end. So that may reside or coincide with a recession, which also means a good balance sheets matter. And we want to have the dry powder uh, in case we have some opportunities for deployment coming. Absolutely. I mean, I, I think, you know, we've, we've all been experiencing an inverted yield curve for a for a, a decent amount of time now, which is typically a recessionary signal. Um, you know, I think we've also seen uh, other signs. I think uh, there was a comment made earlier this week, I think by Jeremy Siegel from the Wharton School that said that, you know, the, the Fed, the Fed's expectation for GDP growth for 2023 is 0.4%. But it was, you know, two and a half percent in the first quarter. So they've got to be projecting negative quarters for the next couple of quarters, which basically are all signs that we could be heading into a challenging economic environment. So with that said, and I, I think, um, you know, definitely want to key in on some additional comments um, related to our our investment philosophy and how we navigate a challenging environment. I'd love to bring in David North, who is the newest member of our uh, asset management team. David comes to us with a ton of experience, um, both running his own hedge fund and um, also working at, at, at others. Uh, and so we're, we're delighted to have David here. David, I, I just wanted to, to, to ask you this question. Um, you know, obviously our goal and our, the DNA of our investment philosophy is to own great businesses over long periods of time. We don't identify ourselves with growth or value disciplines. We don't um, limit ourselves by market capitalization. So I think it's safe to say that, that we really just, just just manage money with a, a quality bias. So what are the advantages of owning high quality businesses going into a challenging economic environment that like we think we might be facing based on some of the characteristics that Adam just described? Thanks, Michael. Um, first, I wanna start by saying it's, it's uh, great to join this team, a uh, team of very smart individuals, but um, also just a bunch of uh, very nice people, so it makes uh, a world of difference in our day-to-day -day lives. Um, so grateful for that. Um, the, the team and the investment process is, is definitely quality focused. Um, we start our process with, uh, we run through a checklist and really the first step in the process is 
is this a great business that I can own for, for a long time? And work through that checklist and, and end with, is evaluation compelling enough to make the investment? And when you start your, your investment process with quality and end it with valuation, it's a very different portfolio that, that you end up with compared to when you start your process with valuation and, and end with quality. If you start with, is the stock cheap? And end, end with, is the business good enough to own? You end up with a significantly lower quality uh, of portfolio. And you, you asked about the advantages of, of owning these high quality businesses. Um, one of the big advantages of owning quality in your investment is it gives you the luxury of time. So as an example, if there's a company that, that has a 35% return on invested capital and another company that uh, has a 10% return on invested capital, um, if the business are held for a long period of time, say 20 years, the 35% ROIC stock is going to perform far in excess to the 10% ROIC stock, regardless of what you pay for the security. So the key is, is that company going to be able to sustain that high level of return on invested capital? So our focus is on doing the due diligence to find these very high return on invested capital companies and assessing whether the business moat will hold up or ideally strengthen and that ultimately allows the company to produce very high levels of, of return for a long period. Another benefit of, of owning these high quality companies is the tax efficiency. So when investing with a deep value style, it's all about buying cheap and selling less cheap. So the turnover is, is naturally going to be uh, a lot higher in value investing um, purely because these companies don't compound over time. And, and to get some some data to back that up, 46% of total shareholder return for investments held one year come from multiple re-ratings. However, when investment is held for 10 years, only 5% of total shareholder returns are from multiple re-ratings. So over the long term, it's, it's fundamentals of the business that drive the performance of the investment. So over that long term, 90% of total shareholder returns are from sales and profit. So those really play in well with our strategy to focus on, on focusing on quality. And our focus as a team is to obviously compound capital at, at an attractive rate, uh, but we do so in a tax efficient manner because of how we invest. Thanks, David. I think you really hit on you know what, part of our origin story, right? Which is uh, the, the ownership of great companies uh, and trying to find those great companies over time. Obviously, the 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 search uh, for those is, is is constant and continuing, and it's also maintaining and, and challenging ourselves at times to make sure that the companies we own are maintaining that level of consistency, discipline, earnings power, balance uh, earnings power and consistency, balance sheet discipline, management commitment to the business, etc. So. With that in mind, uh, you know, I, I think it would be helpful. I know a lot of our um, longtime clients, friends, and listeners to this have have heard this before, but I, I still think it's worth uh, repeating. You know, we we have some quality characteristics that we find again going back to our DNA of having the good fortune of working with family-run businesses, entrepreneurs, executives at at what became large public companies, and through 
those experiences and, and our ability to spend time with those folks, um, you know, we've come up with what we believe has been a very solid winning investment philosophy that's based on finding companies with underlying characteristics that we rep we feel represent the highest quality companies. So I'm proud to bring in um, another one of our analysts, John Wagner. Um, and John's going to um, share with us a little bit about what those uh, what those characteristics are of uh, these high quality businesses that we try to find. Great, thank you, Michael. So we've hit on kind of a high level of what we look for in quality businesses, quality names, and, and just wanted to delve a little bit more into that process and what do we actually look for on a company level basis. So when we're looking at good companies to invest in, we start from a bottom up approach. We look for good companies from the onset. Um, and a, a couple of things we, we start on the balance sheet side of things. So. Um, looking at companies that don't have excess amounts of leverage um, and even across the portfolio this is this is maintained because the dynamic core portfolio we're looking at a net cash position the new era portfolio we're looking at a net cash position and sustainable income is, is below the benchmark on um, on leverage so looking at companies that are not over levered and going one step further not just taking the uh, the overlapping leverage numbers just by themselves but we also look more deeply into what actually comprises that debt. Uh, we look at if it's fixed or floating, and you know if it is a floating debt, how will changes in interest rates affect the company's cash flows and the flexibility of management to make good decisions in the future? So from a balance sheet perspective, that's those are the things that we look at. Moving towards the income statement, we want uh, historical gross and operating margins that are defensible and, and very positive versus their peers and also versus the companies that we already hold. Because when we add or initiate a new company and across any of the portfolios, we want to make sure that we're adding to quality um, and adding to the best holdings that we can. Um, the only place where we'll see anything that's negative operating leverage is a new era name where we think that the, uh, the business intellectual property or the business process has the ability to shift the industry in a meaningful way and has a clear path to profitability. Another thing we look for are very strong management teams and alignment with those management teams. So not only management teams that have a history of making good business decisions um, at the current company they're in and at previous firms, but also if we have long-term alignment with them. So long-term alignment for us looks like strong return of cash to shareholders in the form of stock buybacks in the form of dividends. It also looks like management having high levels of cash, or excuse me, it also looks like management having high levels of stock-based compensation, so they have long-term alignment with the shareholders. Um, and lastly, we're always looking for companies that have extremely defensible moats with long-term tailwinds. So these strong businesses with strong moats ultimately allow for companies to uh, have higher rates of return on invested capital over the extended period of time. John, um, you know, so I think that puts a nice uh, a nice exclamation point on sort of how we feel we're positioned, you know, going into what we're seeing in the rest of the year. We've obviously had a very strong first quarter in our equity strategies. Um, and uh, I think we talked about at a, at a good clip and in, in detail about how we feel about the quality bias and how you know, we expect that to to perform or how we expect that to 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 play out um, with, you know, with some challenges facing us uh, going forward for the rest of the year. So 
So let's turn to some of the uh, the highlighted topics of the day. Um, obviously, the biggest one that we've all been watching over the last couple of weeks has been the failure of Silicon Valley Bank. Um, obviously, that's the most significant sign to date that the Federal Reserve's rate rising initiative has started to break things within the market and the economy. And we've talked in the past about the fact that you know the Fed was trying to break some things. So this is obviously part of their playbook, but not sure that they were expecting um, it to play out this way in particular with the banks and with the specific dynamics of what's going on on bank balance sheets versus uh, customers pulling deposits out of the banks. And so, um, you know, our bank underweighting, as Adam mentioned before, with our with the performance of our sustainable income strategy being up for the year versus the, the relevant index, which is down, a lot of that is because we have a bank underweighting. We only own two banks in the in the sustainable income portfolio. Um, so since that's been driving part of our outperformance, um, Adam, do you think that um, we're seeing starting to see some opportunities to buy into the banking sector? Or is it too early to start nibbling at some of those stocks, which in some cases are down, you know, 20% to 90% um, at this point in time over obviously a very, a very short period? Yeah, thanks, Michael. You know, seeing a move, a massive move down really in a sector we're underexposed to, it really makes us at least take a second or even a third look at names we haven't owned in hopes of finding, you know, some quality on the cheap, the classic babies out with the bathwater kind of scenario. You know, that said, we've held our powder pretty dry, given that we still see risk of a cyclical downturn, right? So, and that's really a separate issue from the recent liquidity stress. You know, it's I, I, I'm going to be a little hesitant to load up on banks right before what may be a credit cycle since any bounce. And we're getting a little bit of a bounce now because we didn't have any bank failures over this last weekend. Um, and, you know, that, you know, we don't really want to load up before a credit cycle because the bounce could be short lived. Right. You know, the other caution points are likely increasing regulation. It happens, you know, pretty much every cycle. Something goes wrong at the banks, you see higher regulations, it causes pressure on profitability, it constrains the banks more. Maybe that's the right overall decision for the economy, but it still could hurt the sector, right? And the other thing we're worried about is just possible disappointments in net interest margins. Given the yield curve inversion, that's not a positive. If you're a bank, you don't want the yield curve inverted. Um, and the recent liquidity challenges, that's going to create some pressure on bank funding costs. Um, as they compete to try to keep the deposits that they have, right? If you've got an overall declining, shrinking pie of deposits, everybody's going to have to fight harder to keep what they have. And that means, you know, possibly some, some margin pressure there. So finally, I would note, you know, when we're looking at the banks that went down the most recently, typically they're ones that took outsized interest rate bets on or bond duration risk, uh, which has come back to bite them as interest rates moved up, right? So this is, you know, back to things we focus on, which John did a great, you know, John and David both did a great job laying out. You know, this is a, at least a yellow flag as far as management quality, you know, which creates a hurdle given our quality focus. You know, if and when we add, it would be more towards companies that have probably come down some of the sector, especially given how much ETF trading dominates things, but really stuck to their knitting and managed risk well, um, which is really important because, again, back to leverage, even a well-run bank is probably 10x levered. Um, you know, so when you have that kind of leverage, there's little room for error. And if we're going to put it into our portfolios, it's going to increase the overall leverage on our portfolio. So it's all all things we take into account and we're trying to manage things over time. Absolutely. Um, so, you know, look, I, I know I'm asking you a little bit to put your, uh, you know, to put your your uh, your magic hat on or get out your crystal ball. 
Um, but as I mentioned earlier, you know, you you do have a lot of banking experience with both as an analyst and also as a bank regulator. So, you know, I, I guess as we look toward the remainder of the year, clearly the Fed and the Treasury are going to need to be successful in stemming the banking issues. Um, some of that may mean that it, it pushes the Fed. I know a lot of us have been screaming for the last several months. I'll, I'll certainly raise my hand and put my hand myself in that category that the Fed needs to pause and you know, let the let the 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 uh, the the rate increases they've already made kind of make their way through the economy. Uh, this to me is is sort of a you know shot across the bow, if you will, um, to say to them, hey, you know, if you haven't been listening up to this point to the idea of of taking a, a step back, maybe you should now. So, you know, I guess my question to you is, a, you know, what are your thoughts about what the Fed and, and the Treasury will have to do in order to to stem the banking crisis, or have they already done? what's been necessary. And then second, you know, if, if it does mean that the Fed does stop raising rates at this point, do you feel that that is ultimately going to lead the market to higher levels since, you know, we've all been, been calling for lower rates or at least a pause in, in the rate rising cycle? Um, great question, Michael. And yeah, I did, you know, once we hit a point like this, I do try to put my, my you know, well-worn regulator hat from from a while ago back on and say okay how would i try to fix that fix that and see how that would you know affect our outlook right so one thing i think that should happen which still hasn't happened is really expanding deposit insurance right so you know it's been hinted at you know the both the fed and the the Secretary of Treasury Yellen have said, yeah, you know, if if a comp if a bank is systemically important, yes, we will pay out the deposits 100%. You know, I think having that out there, you know, is better than not having said anything. On the other hand, I think a much more explicit upfront discussion um, would be healthier for the system overall because, frankly, you don't want to have to have the banks fail because of worries and liquidity before you're putting the deposit insurance in place. I think we're much better off just being upfront and explicit about it and stabilizing the system now. So that's one thing I would look for is, um, especially if we get any more additional issues, which may or may not happen, but if we get more, I think you really need to see, um, you know, Treasury and Fed uh, and the FDIC step forward to get a bit more explicit guarantees. It's also long-term important structurally for the banking system and the economy in the U.S. because right now there are sort of implied guarantees for the big banks. Everybody knows J.P. Morgan or B of A can't go away, so they tend to push all their deposits there when we hit a time of stress. And meanwhile, smaller banks, whether they're well-run or not, will see deposit outflows, and that's exactly what we've seen over the last week or two. Um, it's not really healthy for the system. And if you think about, you know, the small to mid-sized banks are really the drivers of lending into the economy, um, you know, that is really important to maintain. So would love to see that issue of deposit insurance uh, handled in a much more equitable way, way across the banking industry. Um, you know, going back to the issue, uh, the, the second issue, which was if the Fed's stopping, you know, or is everything good from here? Um, it, that's, you know, that's almost a key at this point, and it's really going to be context dependent in my mind, right? So if employment stays strong, inflation is clearly conquered, and it's all, you know, getting down towards what the Fed wants, the liquidity issues prove to be more one-offs than systemic, yeah, you could see the markets do well. Um, that would be the classic soft landing, right? But, you know, going back to, we try to, you know, 
try to really focus on what structurally has changed over recent decades. And like like you mentioned, Michael, we've had the most rapid pace of Fed increases, you know, in over 40 years. And that's with very high levels of debt relative to GDP. You know, we put out a note, you know, a bit over a year ago talking about the fact that debt to GDP in the U.S. is more than 2x what it was in the 1970s, right? So, yeah, we do need to see what the long and variable lags, as the Fed likes to call them, on the rate increases so far due to the economy. We've seen the breakages in the banks. You're going to see flow-throughs to the le- you know the other levered companies in the economy over time. Um, and I think that's the context that we have to watch out for, which is, is it really a soft landing, which doesn't seem that likely to us at this point, or are we into a recession, in which case, yeah, you're probably not going to see the market move up at that point. Makes sense. Uh, so, I, you know, look, I, th- I think we've now covered a lot of what I think is out there that is coloring uh, people's views over whether the market and the economy will do well over the course of the next 12 months or there are going to be additional challenges. We clearly talked about the direction of interest rates, the new challenge with liquidity and the banks, um, how that's going to permeate through to lending, uh, to corporate earnings, et cetera. I think those are obviously the main bullet points. Um, But I'm going to turn back to John and ask him, are are there any uh, potential market positives? And I would also say, I guess, additional risks that, that really aren't being discussed today and whether it's in the mainstream financial media or, uh, you know, or, or out there in the, you know, in the research that we read, are, there, are, are we seeing any additional potential positives or any potential uh, risks that, that, that really aren't um, being discussed, but that could be significant factors? Thanks, Michael. Yeah, looking at potential positives for the market that maybe aren't being talked about too heavily, um, we could kind of see some interesting strength across residential home and residential housing markets uh, in the back half of the year. And to contextualize that, we do have to differentiate between throughput and, and pricing strength. Now, what we're not saying is we expect pricing strength to happen for the for the year to go through. This is supported by all the data that we're seeing from CoreLogic, from HPI. Um, we, we don't expect housing prices to increase rapidly or anything. What we really want to look at is the throughput and um, the the sales activity that goes on. So looking at where mortgage applications are currently pending home sales and existing sales, you're essentially at historic lows, um, even going back to 2008, 1990s. um, This this is kind of the trough that we're currently in. And why is that? If we go back to the last couple of years, we've seen interest rates for a 30-year mortgage move from the the 3% range up to the 6% range, and that looks really painful from an affordability standpoint for any sort of buyer that's out there. But now we've seen 30-year rates move to 7%, north of 7%. And this is all based on 10-year treasury moves. So as we've seen these 10-year treasury moves come down, which is historically has a high correlation to where mortgage rates sit, as we've seen these 10-year treasury moves come down a little bit, maybe that 6% looks a lot more affordable, looks a lot less painful than uh, the north of 7% did beforehand. So that could be an interesting positive that not way too many people are talking about currently, but we could see play out later in the year. Um, an interesting risk, this is something that has come up a lot. So we look at credit card data um, and, and track spending data as well as consumer confidence and just the strength of the consumer one thing that's been crushed over the last couple of uh, couple of months is the total backstop 
on savings. While consumers are earning more in their savings because interest rates are higher, a lot more credit card spending is going on. So that could def definitely be a risk and put a squeeze on the consumer in the back half of the year. Thanks, John. That's super interesting. I want to I want to um, change direction a little bit now um, and bring in uh, Grady O'Gara, who is our our head trader. We we we're we're lucky to have Grady here. Grady has um, a lot of experience uh, trading both for Masters Capital and also Sendvest, and um, we're lucky to have Grady uh, on our team. Um, and I wanted to turn to Grady to talk about some structural items that we really haven't spent a lot of time talking with. With, with our with our audience here about, but it's something we talk about internally a lot. So Grady, first welcome, and and, and second, um, can you talk a little bit about the market structure and liquidity, um, and what and, and in those and in those two topics, like what what is really important for investors to understand about about that as it relates to how we see uh, you know performance in the markets moving forward. Yeah, absolutely, Michael. Thank you, and and definitely glad to be here. I echo David's sentiments. I think we have a great team and uh, great environment, great people here. So thanks for having me. Um, but just sort of on a macro level, you know, we're we're living in a pretty volatile world right now. I think you know rates have been rising um, at a historic pace. We have a war going on. COVID, you know, lockdowns have been lifted in China, but they're trying to get out of that. Um, we're heading into an election. Um, yeah, you know, but as far as U.S. markets are concerned, we've had sort of a positioning imbalance for the last 15 years due to rates being so low. And so from a crowding perspective, it matters a lot when circumstances change. Um, and so I think, you know, historically, active management's role has been to control price. They kind of set where stocks are, are bought and sold. Um, but as passive investing has continued to take market share away from active investing, liquidity and therefore volatility has increased. So passive investors, as we know, just only trade on flow, right? You give them money, they buy, you take money away, they sell. Um, they're not necessarily invest investing for fundamental reasons. It's more just about exposure in general. Um, so their gain of market share makes sense given the underperformance of active managers like hedge funds and their larger fee structures. Um, but, you know, the, the market's liquidity profile continues to decline, uh, especially today as more and more investors move into cash and money market products. I mean, you can earn close to 5% on three month paper right now, and we haven't seen yields like that in decades. Um, so global money market assets, to put that in context right now are close to 8 trillion, up from 3 trillion in 2010. Um, and as for the liquidity profile in the bond market, you know, it's the exact same. There's, there's just none. <clears throat> so Adam alluded to the fact that ETF volume continues to dominate the market right now. It's about as high as 40% of overall traded volume over the last few weeks. And we know that these ETFs track indices, which are most, um, most usually weighted products. So as we continue to zap liquidity from the market, and move these ETFs around, single stock volatility in turn moves higher as a result. Um, and then, you know, a lot of people have been talking about this, the zero DTE, that's same day expiry options. Um, we've seen an explosion of activity in these products. Um, it's had an outsized effect on day-to-day -day moves in the markets. Um, as of recently, it's been as, as high as 50% of the overall options traded volume. 
So to put this in, in perspective um, and to explain it a little further, you know, the banks who sell these products to investors have much less time to manage their day-to-day P&L now, right? So we're seeing intraday swings in both directions as they have to manage their risk because we know that they have to end their day with their books flat. So they can't take outsized risk anymore. They can't hold risk overnight. So every day has turned into its own ecosystem. And, you know, in an environment where we still have little to no liquidity on either side of the spread, it matters. Um, And then to to take this further, most dealers or banks who are selling these products to investors use the futures market to hedge their risk. So say I... Say, say, Michael, that you buy a today expiring S&P option, a call option, and a dealer sells it to you. The dealer who's short that call option is now short the S&P and needs to buy S&P futures to hedge his position. But the liquidity in the futures market was recently $2 million on either side of the spread. Historically, it's been one of the most liquid markets in the world. Um, so this just means that the cost of hedging or the cost to just plainly transact has increased substantially. And then, you know, there's a few more things here. Mechanical strategies like vol targets or CTAs, risk parity, they have a lot more money than active managers as well. And they mostly buy and sell based on triggers in the vol market. So it's, this is a computer program. It's not a human being making a decision. And we've seen them have outside influence in the market. I mean, you know, go back to the flash crash in 2010 and 2015. <clears throat> you know, it doesn't help that when this happens and they have to, they have to, you know, exit the crowded hallway with a tiny door at the end of it. You know, for high frequency trading desks step away from making liquid markets. So, um, the last point I'd like to mention is that right now, you know, it's the retail, it's the retail trading. The guys who were working from home during COVID. Um, you know, they can get a hold of information and have outsized influence on stocks like GameStop, you know, we saw in 2010, for example. Um, you know, in a world of re- reduced liquidity, you can have some pretty sizable moves. That's super interesting, Grady. You know, what, one of the things we've always said here, which is kind of core to our investment discipline, is we try to root out the signals and ignore the noise. And I think what you just described is the noise has gotten a lot noisier based on these uh, mechanics and the dynamics that have gone on in the market and where, where new products that have been developed, where liquidity stands. Um, and so I think one of the things that noise does provide is opportunity. You know, there's, there can be uh, un, non-fundamental reasons why stocks are moving in historically volatile ways. But, you know, for us, you know, looking for long, long-term investments in high-quality companies, you know, while that noise isn't always pleasant to go through, um, it does give us, it, it does sometimes point to opportunity. Something else I'll mention that you said to me the other day, which I think is um, important for people to hear, is that $8 trillion in cash that's sitting in money markets and T-bills and things like that, you know, eventually that, I mean, that, that seems to be short-term thinking, right? And eventually as markets calm and as the economy does whatever it does and, and, and clarity kind of comes in, you know, that $8 trillion could drive a lot of, of momentum in the market to the upside. Do you, do you agree with that? Yeah, I think it's an extremely bullish um, stat, to be honest with you, because when that needs to be redeployed, you know, like I said, it's a it's it's a it's a world where, you know, spreads are thin. Liquidity is thin um, and you can really move stuff around pretty quickly. Um, So if if that if that's redeployed, it could be a significant event. 
Absolutely. So, so I, I know we're running out of time. I want to, I want to turn again real quick to David, um, and ask, uh, ask my last question, which, um, which is this. So, so we talked a lot today about macro factors. We talked about interest rates. We talked about, we've talked about inflation. Um, and it's been pretty clear that for the last couple of years, maybe even the last three years, that equity performance has been driven by a lot of macro factors. And, and David, in your earlier comments about, um, you know, the benefits of owning. Uh, or having a quality bias and owning high quality businesses. Uh, you, you pointed some statistics out that show that over longer periods of time, it's really the fundamentals of the business that that drive the stock price, not um, not some of these other factors. So, you know, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the fact that, you know, clearly we've been dealing more with a more macro dependent market you know, over the last three years, but how has that investment landscape potentially changed? And then what are, uh, you know, over time and historically, like when do we start to see trends um, shift and and what can we learn, you know, from some of those uh, past history historical historical times? Yeah, this is really interesting to me. Um, the investment landscape clearly changes a lot over time, and if if there are listeners that are um, interested in this, there are two books that I'd highly recommend. Um, one is a book called en- Engines That Move Markets, and the other book is called Titan. Um, and Titan's actually a book about the life of John D. Rockefeller. And these two books provide insight into historical industry S curves at, at different points in time. And if you look at the history of successful investing, um, whether it's steel, like as an example, steel, railroad, shipping, and oil, these were great sectors to invest in since the 1860s. Um, obviously, these are very capital intensive. But th- those were the best investment opportunities at that time. Um, the the oil sector became challenging uh, to invest in from around 2014 when when ESG started gaining traction. Um, banks were good investments from the early 1900s and became challenging since 2008 when the industry became heavily regulated and interest rates were driven to zero. Department stores these were good investments from about 1960 to around 2014. Uh, at the time when e-commerce and companies like Amazon really started taking off um, and that negatively impacted the retail space. Um, tech has been a good area to invest for the majority of the last 30 years with some hiccups, of course, um, like the dot-com bubble bust um, and the 2022 uh, vast rate increases. Uh, but the tech space is uh, where a lot of high-quality companies can be found today. So technology has become part of every company and investment, regardless of whether the company is a tech company. And similarly, AI will continue to become more pervasive over time. The areas um, that continue to be good investments today are brands, tech, software, or platforms, uh, growth, and compounders. Um, and the, the three common themes over time for good investments, if you look through the history, have been strong business mode, growth, and secular tailwind. Those were common across all the times where uh, those sectors were were doing well. Um, Another change to be mindful of as an investor is the accessibility of investment data. So as an example, in the 80s and 90s, investors would just look at the newspaper and and search for cheap PE ratios, whereas today investors have all the quantitative data at the click of a button, right? So um, 
So what, how does that change things? So as a result, investing has really shifted from quantitative assessment to qualitative assessment. So today it's about assessing moats and understanding what made companies great and, and being able to determine what that company will look like in five or 10 years down the road. We all know that Warren Buffett has uh, mentioned that he had to adapt his investment style over the decades. He went from originally being a deep value cigar butt investing type investor and he shifted, actually Charlie Munger got him to shift towards focusing more on quality, which helped him make an investment like um, Costco, for example. And, and these higher quality businesses really compound well over time. So for me, there are two major takeaways here when, when researching history and these different uh, timeframes of investments. Um, focus on the highest, the first takeaway is focus on the highest quality companies of your time. Um, today we have the, the you know, the luxury of, of tech being far more advanced and AI making a big impact and all that. Um, and then number two is investing today is about qualitative assessment more so than quantitative assessment. So when we do our due diligence, it's essential to get out there and meet with companies management team, do store checks, have calls with competitors and customers, and find other ways to give ourselves an edge or a unique perspective of, of what makes this company great and how will it be positioned in the future. Thanks, David. I think that that that's a, a nice uh, place to end. You know, I, I think you make a great point. I don't know that any of us who have followed Warren Buffett over the course of our lives and careers would have ever thought he would own companies like Apple and Google. But, um, you know, at the end of the day or Amazon at the end of the day, as you said, I think it's I think it's really about the qualitative um, the quality of a business and and how it's going to how it's going to improve and evolve um, and be consistent over time. And you know, I think that that's always going to be the the central theme of any of any conversation or discussion that we have about investing. Is that um, you know that that's obviously a core tenant, and that, and that core tenant itself um, solves a lot of, of of or answers a lot of questions, and in some cases solves a lot of concerns or addresses a lot of concerns, um, no matter what kind of market environment we're facing. So. With that, I, I'd just like to say thank you to Adam, John, uh, David, and Grady for, for taking the time to, 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 uh, to speak with us today. I know we talked about a lot of things, and um, obviously any of you out there who um, have listened to this and have further questions, please, do, please uh, don't hesitate to reach out to us. So thanks again for listening, and, and we'll, uh, we'll see you again on our next podcast. Thanks again for listening to this episode of Taking the Complex and Making It Simple, the Merlin Wealth Management Educational Podcast. For more information on Merlin Wealth Management, please visit our website at rcm.rocco.com forward slash Merlin. Please stay tuned for an important legal disclaimer. This recording is provided for informational purposes only and is not an offer to buy or sell or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell any security or to participate in any investment strategy and should not be interpreted to constitute a recommendation with respect to any security or investment plan. The views and opinions expressed are solely those of the presenters as of the date of this recording may not be current and are subject to change and are general in nature. Rockefeller Capital Management has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Rockefeller Capital Management and may differ from the views and opinions of other departments or divisions of Rockefeller Capital Management and its affiliates. Rockefeller Capital Management is not 
providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. The information is not individualized. You should review any planned financial transactions or arrangement that may have tax, accounting, or legal implications with your personal professional advisors. Rockefeller Capital Management does not guarantee the accuracy or reliability of the information provided in this podcast, and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. No investment strategy can guarantee profit or protection from loss. Future results may vary substantially from past performance. Investing involves risk, including risk of loss. This recording may not be copied, reproduced, or distributed in whole or in part for any purpose without prior written consent. Rockefeller Capital Management is the marketing name of Rockefeller Capital Management LP and its affiliates. Merlin Wealth Management is part of Rockefeller Financial LLC, a broker-dealer and investment advisor duly registered with the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, Member Financial Industry Regulatory Authority, and Securities Investor Protection Corporation. The registrations and memberships mentioned in no way imply the SEC has endorsed the entities, products, or services discussed herein. Additional information is available upon request.